0: Folks, we've been studying the book of Judges, and we're still in it. It's uh, an interesting book, kind of a painful book to read. The pattern in it, we've seen, is of rebellion on the part of God's covenant people, ancient Israel. We see Israel's inexplicable, repetitive rebellion, and then we also see God's restoration. So those two words might be the theme of the book, if you'd like to make it concise and simple, rebellion. And restoration a mysterious rebellion on the part of God's people and just as mysterious restoration by a gracious God and the reason why judges is in here is not so much that we would get a history lesson about ancient Israel as much as we would see the nature of humankind and the nature of God human nature is that we sin even under the best of circumstances. It's in us, folks. I know some people are persuaded that we're inherently good, but that seems to fly in the face of the facts. Good night. We sin in thought, word, and deed. We don't study sin. We're we're PhDs in sinning, even from the time we're born, uh, born. In fact, the Bible says we're conceived in sin. So that's human nature, and we're seeing it played out in Judges. But just as overwhelming and striking is divine nature. What is it like? It's merciful and gracious. When one cries out to Almighty God, even in the throes of one's sin, God hears that cry and responds graciously and mercifully. So if you doubt the response of God to your sin, please learn from the book of Judges, and you'll see, as he was with Israel, so too he's willing to be with you. So Israel sins repeatedly. Israel suffers for it. Israel then cries out to God. He hears her cry, and he sends, as a vehicle of deliverance, a group of people called judges. Not judges in the sense in which we think of them. They were kind of uh, sort of mini-saviors, if you will. God raised them up. And, uh, and they went to work, and they corrected Israel, and were used by God to liberate Israel from oppression and bondage and all the rest. And we've read about some of these judges, and tonight we'll begin to read a little bit more about the next one. You know about him. His name is Gideon. Uh, there's more written about Gideon in the book of Judges than anybody else. Three chapters are devoted to Gideon. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 we will only venture into chapter 6 tonight. It's full of great stuff. Here's how it begins. Judges 6, beginning in verse 1. It begins with the word then. It's a time indicator. It means something preceded it. What was it? Well, the previous judge died. It was a she, the only female judge in this book. Deborah died and when she like all the judges died Israel lapsed back into her sin when their many Savior was gone sin took control and isn't it good that we have a Savior who doesn't die the Lord Jesus he's always with us he indwells us to keep us from sinning so here's what it says then uh, everyone then w- the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord We've seen that phrase repeated, it's important to note that the wrongdoing and transgression they committed was deemed to be wrong and evil in the sight of the Lord. People then and now probably would have defended their misbehavior and they might have said, we don't think what we're doing is sinful at all. It's reasonable. Hence, under inspiration, the writer is telling us what they did was considered to be sin in the eyes of God. See, the problem in the day was summed up by the last verse. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the day in which we live. It's called moral relativism. And you have no right, I have no right to even say to someone, that's wrong or this is right because the retort would be, well, who says so? That may be wrong to you, but not to me. See, that's moral relativism. Everyone is doing what's right in his or her own eyes. That happened in ancient Israel. It's happening today. And so what happened is the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. You know who did that? A loving God. Now, some of us are going to have a hard time reconciling this activity with the love of God. But it is an act of love to give people what they need, not necessarily what they want. What did Israel need? Israel needed the full experience of the full consequences of her sin. And So for seven years, that's what happened. As a result of her rebellion against God, she was given over to the Midianites and they made life pretty difficult, horrific to the Israelites. It is a loving God who allowed it to run its course because nothing else would move Israel to repentance. And that's what he did. The text says he gave them into the hands of Midian. By the way, Midian was uh, the son of Abraham through a lady named Keturah. Sarah had died. Abraham took another wife named Keturah. They produced Midian from whom come this people group called the Midianites, They were a nomadic people. They were found in the Middle East to the east and southeast of the Jordan. So it would have been in present-day Jordan where the Midianites pretty much lived. And here's what happened, verse two. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Why? Well, because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. It was a really grievous time for the Israelites. The Midianites were very tough on them. They therefore, the Israelites, were forced to take refuge, think about it, in dens and in caves. It shouldn't be God's children hiding out in caves, but it was. It's not supposed to be this way. But that's what sin did. That's what sin does. Sin can take a child of God, elevated to the position of sonship or daughtership and render us a fugitive taking refuge in the dark places. That's what sin does. Now, listen, if you're here, thank God, but in one of those dark places, would you run to Jesus? Would you, would you please consider running to him if you know him but are living like you don't? Don't do it any longer. You're not meant to live in caves and in the darkness. You're meant to be a victor, not a fugitive. Do some business with God tonight. Jesus is the light. Get out of the darkness. Cry out to Jesus, just as you'll see these undeserving people, just like you, did. And his response to them is uh, as he would be willing to respond to you. Oh, God, I have sinned against thee. I know better And now I'm enveloped by darkness. It's as if I'm living as a fugitive instead of as a son or daughter. I repent of my sin. That means to turn from it. And I turn back to you. I know better. Oh, God, thank you for welcoming me, just like a prodigal son or daughter. Now would you restore me to full fellowship with you? He will. He can. He desires to, even as you sit right here tonight. Well, verse 3, it was when Israel had sown, this is what happened. They were agrarian, agricultural, so when they sowed seed, Midianites would come up. They came from the east across the Jordan River. They came westward, and they would come with other people groups, the Amalekites and other sons from the east. They would go against the Israelites. In fact, they would camp against them. They would destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza they would leave no sustenance in israel as well as sheep or ox or donkey and they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come in like locusts for number there were a lot of them we'll see later on they had an army of about 135,000 both they and their camels one of the first times you see camels mentioned as a military tactical weapon in all of the bible they would come up with their camels and they were innumerable and they came into the land to devastate it. So they waited to the Israelites to do the work. Crops would grow. And then the Midianites would come. And then they would pillage. That's what they did. And so verse 6, Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the sons of Israel, look, they cried out to the Lord. And it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian. And when I read this, I paused and said, oh God, Midian was good. Midian was was used for good. Midian made life difficult for the Israelites, and because of it, Israel cried out to God, and she wasn't before that. Folks, you and I do better, I think, in times of adversity than in times of prosperity. When things are bad, particularly because we're not walking closely with the Lord Jesus Christ, you get to a point where you're so low, you look up and you cry out for mercy. And the God of all mercy and grace stands ready to deliver. And so the catalyst to get Israel finally to cry out to God their ultimate deliverer was the Midianite oppression. And so I learned just from this why God allows hardships to come our way. Be honest, folks, as I'm trying to be. It's better for us to be kept in our place of sheer and utter dependence on Almighty God. We don't volunteer for it, and therefore he engenders it by letting us taste what life is like autonomously from him, independent of him, so that with ancient Israel we would run to him and cry out for mercy. So when they cried out, look, verse 8, the Lord sent a prophet. Interesting. Uh, Up until now, he sent a judge first. Now it says he sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, the prophet, speaking for God, He said, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, it was I who brought you up from Egypt and and brought you out from the house of slavery. Why did God send a prophet before a judge? Well, I, I think before God sent a judge to deliver them, he knew they needed to hear from a prophet to rebuke them. God was their deliverer. And as soon as they went into the land, they started to worship false gods and they needed to be convicted of it. They forgot that the God who delivered them was their true God and only hope. And so the prophet of God, by the way, what's his name or her name? We don't know. You know, something else occurred to me when I was studying this text. So many marvelous things are done by people the world knows not of. You may be one of them. You're not amongst the rich and famous, but you're serving God faithfully in your quiet way. Keep doing it. God takes note of who you are, even though others may not. We don't know the name of this prophet. And yet God used this person to perform quite a significant function. The prophet came before the deliverer. The prophet came to prepare the way of the deliverer. You know what this reminded me of? John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus. Remember when John the baptizer, the immerser said, prepare ye the way of the Lord. This looks like in sort of miniature form a foreshadowing of that. And so the prophet continues to declare God's message in verse nine. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of your oppressors and I dispossessed them before I gave you their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. And so I realized that the problem was not the Midianites, it's the Israelites. The Midianites were the consequence of Israelite sin. You have not obeyed me. And so then, verse 11, the angel of the Lord, interesting, after the prophet of the Lord, now we're introduced to the angel of the Lord. Do you happen to know what his name is? Ooh, some, many, smarter than me, think this is what's called a theophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. We're getting ready to celebrate the marvelous Christmas event, but you must not think the Lord began on Christmas. He always was. He's pre-existent. He only became in flesh as a babe born in Bethlehem during this time of year which we celebrate. But he always existed. He has no beginning nor any end. What did he do before Christmas? Well, this is one of the things he did. He was quite active even during Old Testament times, appearing in many cases. And when he does, the phrase used to describe it is the angel of the Lord. So I'm one of those people who believe this is a pre-incarnate, before he became enfleshed, Old Testament Appearance of the Lord Jesus. The angel came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah. Where's that? No idea. But we know it belonged to someone named Joash, who was in Abiezrite. And he had a son named Gideon. So now we're finally, firstly introduced to Gideon. And what was Gideon doing? He was beating out wheat in the winepress. Why? In order to save it from the Midianites. So we're introduced to Gideon, who has no idea. He's going to be the next judge and deliverer of Israel. He has no idea. You know what he's doing now? He's hiding from the Midianites. Folks, I'm I'm not a farm boy, but I know enough to know you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. You know what you do with wheat? You do it outside, uh, under the sky. Why? You take the wheat, you throw it up in the air, and the good stuff falls to the ground. It's heavier, and the bad stuff, chaff, is blown away by the wind. Well, he's not doing it as you're supposed to do it on the outside. He's doing it in a wine press. Why? Because the soon-to-be deliverer of Israel is afraid. I used to think Gideon was some kind of giant, and now I'm saying, oh, no, he's not. God did an extraordinary work through a rather ordinary dude, just like you and me. He's hiding out in fear at present. He didn't look much like a deliverer at all. And so the angel of the Lord, verse 12, appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Gideon, I'm sure, was looking around. Valiant warrior, I'm shaking in my boots. I'm hiding out in the the wine press. That's where I'm doing my wheat thing. I'm afraid of the... Valiant warrior? I'm afraid of these Midianites. How does the angel of God get off calling him that? The angel of the Lord, the Lord himself, sees right from the beginning who he intends to make us. When you got saved, uh, the Savior saw your potential. He saw you to do good things contrary to your nature. He saw some of you to do great things you're as surprised as Gideon was it doesn't come natural to you can I tell you this I was in high school a long time ago and we had speech class you remember that I was terrified of it you get assignments and then it's your day you got to stand up in front of the class you got to make a speech I'd be sick the night before losing sleep I'd be nauseous the next day terrified now i have the privilege of standing up in front of you look i'm still terrified but, but 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 it's humorous to me that god would would have maybe seen me i came to know him on september 5th in 1973 as someone one day who would be given the privilege of speaking about the pearls of wisdom the treasures of his word to To people, it doesn't come natural to me. But that's how God is, with you too. He sees your potential to bring glory to his name. He doesn't see you for who you are. He sees you for who you will be when he envelops you in his spirit and fashions you into his image and gives you supernatural gifts to bring glory to his name. So he is in advance, calling Gideon a valiant warrior. That's not who he is, but it's who he will become. So Gideon said to him, verse 13, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, didn't the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Does that guy sound like a valiant warrior to you? Man, I love the honesty of the Bible. He's not only fearful, he's pretty faithless. He's not only fearful, but he's confused. Come on, Gideon ought to know better. What's befallen Israel is not due because to God turning his back on Israel. It's due to Israel turning her back on God. Gideon ought to know this, but he doesn't, he doesn't get it. And so it goes on, verse 14, the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength not his inherent strength, the strengthening of God's presence. Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He didn't tell Gideon, you're super, you're strong, you're tough, you can do it. He didn't want to build up Gideon's flesh nor self-confidence. Oh no, go in this strength, the strength of my great commission and the strength of my anointing go. And so this is a dangerous thing we have today. People are teaching their kids things like believe in yourself. That's a terrible thing. You don't want your kid believing in himself. Your kid's a sinner. Did you know that? Your kid is really weak. You don't want to tell your kid you can be anything you want to be. That's a lie. I've told you before, I've wanted to be an NBA basketball player. So I can tell by your laughter, that's ridiculous. Well, then don't tell me I can be anything I want to be. No, I can't. But I can do whatever it is the Lord calls me to do in this, your strength, meaning his strengthening. So we are constantly wanting to build up our self-confidence and our image and all the rest. And God is lovingly, constantly seeking to tear it down. It's dangerous for us to lean on the flesh and to be self-confident. Oh, no, God wanted Gideon to to lean on him. So verse 15, uh, he, Gideon, said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? I mean, behold, my family is the least in Manasseh. I'm the youngest in my father's house. Gideon is trying to talk God out of all of this. I am so impressed at at how unimpressive this soon-to-be valiant warrior is. I never thought I was like Gideon. I'm exactly like Gideon. So are you. Oh, God, you know, I think you got the wrong guy. We, I come from this weakest tribe and the smallest family. I'm just not the guy. But the Lord said to him, verse 16, no, no, surely I will be with you. You shall defeat Midian as one man. And so Gideon said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. Mm. God gave him his word. God gave him a promise. God gave him assurance. It's not enough. And so Gideon says, can you give me a sign? So verse 18, please don't depart from here. Gideon continues, until I come back to you. And Gideon takes off after saying that. Til I, till I bring out my offering, I'm going to lay it before you. And he said, I, I will remain until you return. And so Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread. From an ephah of flour, he put the meat in a basket, broth in a pot. He brought them out uh, under the oak and presented them. The angel of God said to him, okay, take the meat and the unleavened bread, put them on this rock, pour out the broth. Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord put the end of his staff, was in his hand. He touched the meat and the bread, and fire sprang up from the rock, consumed the meat and the unleavened bread, And then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Good night, Gideon. You want a sign? Holy moly, that's your sign. And so when Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, alas, oh, Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, peace to you, shalom, don't be afraid, you shall not die And Gideon built an altar there to the Lord. He named it the Lord is Peace, Jehovah Shalom. To this day, it's still in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Now on the same night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old. Pull down the altar of Baal, Canaanite god, which belongs to your father. Cut down the Asherah, other false gods that is beside it. Woe. First things first, Gideon, before you cut down the Midianites, you got to cut down uh, altars to false gods in your own life. Listen, are you a Christian uh, for a long time or new? Uh, regardless, uh, sooner or later in the Christian life, God's going to ask you and me to do the same thing. He's going to say, get rid of the false gods in your life. Uh, uh, that's what he's going to say. That's serious business. Been beautiful to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember the day that happened to me. You probably do as well. And then it gets tough, <laughs> because he who redeemed us has every right to conform us to his own image, and therefore you you can't go out and do battle against the Midianites until you first remove false idols in your own life. You have any? Yeah, you do. What are you leaning on other than the Lord Jesus Christ? You know what he demands? One hundred percent, absolute, full devotion. It can't be Jesus plus anything. So sooner or later, he's going to say, before you cut down, By the way, Gideon means he who cuts down. Gideon, before you cut down the Asherah poles and the Baals, I mean, before you cut down Midian in battle, you have to cut down these false gods. Ask God to search you out. What do you got going on in your life that you run to when you're in pain other than the Lord Jesus? What are you leaning on other than or in addition to him, Jesus demands, deserves, wants, full, and total dependence on him alone. So, God continues to tell him, do this. Verse 26, after you cut down that stuff, build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner. Take a second bow, offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you cut down. Take your false gods and burn them. And in their place, do something that brings glory to Almighty God. Well, then Gideon took 10 men of his servants and uh, did as the Lord had spoken to him because he was too afraid. I just love this guy. He's me. He was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day. He did it by night. He took 10 guys to do it. They did it under cover of darkness. He was afraid of what his dad would think. Why? These were his dad's false gods. And so when the men of the city arose early the next morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down and the Asherah which was beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. And so they said to one another, who did this thing? And when they searched about it and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did it. And so then the men of the city came to Joash, Gideon's father. They said, bring out your son that he may die. Here's what he did. He tore down the altar of Baal. And indeed, he's cut down the Asherah, which was beside it. But get this, Joash, Gideon's uh, false god, idolatrous dad, uh, uh, Joash said, To all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall surely be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him contend for himself because someone has torn down his altar. What in the world brought about this unbelievable change in Gideon's father's life? It was Gideon taking seriously the call of God upon his life. It was Gideon doing what God told him to do. Folks, I'll tell you what you and I have done over the last years. We have become relevant. We're so relevant to the surrounding culture, they don't see any difference between us and them. We've compromised sexuality. We've compromised forms of entertainment. We've compromised moral and ethical convictions. We fit in, and we have so cheapened our allegiance to the Lord Jesus, we have rendered him unattractive. People desperate for something else can't find it in us because we've become so relevant and so compromised. We are indistinguishable from the surrounding society out there. But when Gideon placed a high valuation on his devotion to the Lord Jesus. When he said, I must do what God my father wants me to do, even before what my biological father wants me to do, then the biological father took note and said, Baal cannot produce that kind of authenticity and devotion this God whom my son has come to be acquainted with must be the true God. Let Baal take care of himself. What God is it who needs to be defended? And so therefore, in our parlance, he converted because he saw the reality of the true God in Gideon's life. Verse 32, therefore on that day, his father named him Jerubbaal, That means he who contends (laughs) with Baal. From this point on, Gideon's nickname would be Jerubbaal. It It was a wonderful thing for his father to assign to him. It meant my son lives constantly to embarrass Baal. My son lives constantly to contend with him. My son has taken a stand between false gods and the one true God, his name will be Jerubah. Verse 33, so all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east, here's what they did. They assembled themselves and they crossed over, that's the Jordan River, they camped in the valley of Jezreel. Verse 34, so the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Ah, that's what made Gideon into a valiant warrior, the spirit of God. Um, I hope you're praying regularly for whomever the Lord may choose to be the next under-shepherd of this church. And it's just, I hope you're being delighted in imagining what characteristics that person might bring to the table. But above all, this one is indispensable. You must not settle for someone. Who doesn't show evidence of the spirit of, lo- of the Lord being upon him. What if he has an advanced degree? Great. It doesn't hurt. What if he's good looking? Good. Got to look at a guy every Sunday. Might as well be someone who's good looking. Fine. What if he has a wonderful wife and family? Groovy. What if he can sing on tune? We'll take him. Whatever. All that is good stuff. But folks, if he's someone who doesn't have the spirit of the Lord upon him, then we just have a good looking guy. Don't do it. I know the search team, they're marvelous. You chose them. Well, I think God did. They are very prayerful and they're very patient. And they're gonna ask God to show them the man upon whom is the spirit of the Lord. They don't know how to find him. They don't know when they are needy, and you must pray. Oh, God, show those wonderful 12 people, the one upon whom is your spirit enabling him. He may be no better than Gideon, but endued with your spirit, he can lead this church to its most glorious and uh, God-glorifying days in the days ahead. So the spirit of the Lord came upon faithless, fearful Gideon, And he blew a trumpet, and the Ezrites were called together to follow him, and he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they were called together to follow him. He sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun. They all came. A leader is a rallying point. Uh, How how do you know you have a leader with the supernatural gift of leadership? It's easy. People want to follow him. (laughs) That's how. We're not talking about you know, corporate America leadership skills. We're talking about supernatural spiritual gift of leadership. In my opinion, you can't have the next leader of this church who doesn't have a supernatural gift of leadership. How do you recognize it? Oh, there's just something about that man. He engenders your confidence. You're willing to trust him, even though you know he's just a flawed Gideon like everybody else. Still you see evidence of God's work in his life, and you're willing to follow him as he follows the Lord. So all these people come out of the woodwork all of a sudden, and they're willing to follow little old Gideon. It's not attributed to him. He's not so great. He was made great when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. So verse 36, Gideon said to God, If if you will deliver Israel through me as you've spoken, behold, I'll put a fleece of wool, (laughs) probably lamb's wool. I'll put it on the threshing floor. Here's what he's doing. If there's dew on the fleece only, and it's dry on all the ground, then I'll know you will deliver Israel through me as you've spoken. But, and it was so. And when he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the, it was like a bowl full of water. But then Gideon said, I can't believe this guy keeps coming. Gideon said to God, but don't let your anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test, testing God, once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece. Let there be dew on the, you know, reverses that stuff. Look what God did. God did so, God did so that night. For it was dry only on the fleece, and dew was on all the ground. So I want to ask you, is Gideon's fleece thing something we ought to be doing today? Well, it depends on who you ask, but since I got the microphone, I'll tell you, no, we shouldn't be doing this today. You say, what what, what do you mean? Isn't this a legitimate way of discerning God's will? Oh, you're missing the whole point. Gideon didn't need the fleece to discern God's will. How much more clear could God have made his will known? Gideon's problem is, now. I'm confused about your will. Gideon's problem is that he was afraid to do it. Gideon did not need a fleece with water or not water. Gideon need, he needed to man up. Gideon needed faith and obedience. That's one reason we don't need the fleece. Second, we have two things Gideon didn't have. One is the spirit of God. He said, blah, blah. But the text says the spirit of God came upon him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not in him the way he has come in us since Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now the Spirit is in us, not for special missions, but forever. You never have to pray, oh God, take not thy Spirit from me. God will say, I don't intend to. We're better off than Gideon. We have the Spirit of God to guide us But not only that, we have the Word of God. Gideon had part of it. We got the totality of it. If you want to wonder what you, a man or woman of God, are supposed to do, consult the Word of God through the promptings of the Spirit of God. You don't need a fleece anymore. Therefore, someone said this. This is so cool. I wish I said it, but I didn't, but I... I can tell you someone said it. Rather than setting a fleece on the ground, we would do better to set our knees on the ground and pray. If you want to know God's will, get on your knees and pray. Don't worry about the fleece thing. Well, anyway, uh, we'll close here, but I hope you notice this. What did God do with Gideon's incessant goofball requests for a sign? You know what God did? He gave it to him. He gave him, in this text alone, three signs. He had given, God had given him his clear promise and his word and his assurance, and it wasn't enough. Gideon, the faithless man, how about this, how about that? And God came through, why? I'll tell you why. God only has people like Gideon, faithless, fearful people to work with. Look around. It's us. God doesn't have the finished product to work with because none of us are that finished product. God doesn't have anyone here perfectly matured and complete in his or her faith. No, we're not. God doesn't have one person here who doesn't struggle with fear and doubt and all the rest. We love the Lord Jesus. We know him. And yet when he brings things our way and requires things of us, we just pull a Gideon. This is so encouraging. Oh, wonderful father didn't rebuke, rebuke this dude. You think he should have? He didn't spank him or anything. God, I think, gave him a benign smile, realizing what he's made of. Gideon, you're the guy hiding out from the Midianites. I got you. Gideon, you're the guy blaming your plight on me when in fact it's your people and you who become idolatrous. I got all that. I'm going to be patient with you. I'm in the process of changing you day by day and I can work with even your immature, imperfect faith and I can get the job done through you and you and you and you and me. This is in here, not as a history lesson, but as a word of encouragement. Here's how we conclude. There's not one thing great about Gideon, but man, there's a ton that's great about Gideon's God. Uh, this is shaking my inclination to uh, worship, um, People, leaders, even marvelous leaders. Because the best of men is but a man at best. Instead, what we should worship is the greatness of God who could take people, every one of us, with sinful inclinations, with flaws, with doubts, and with fears, and still God can get his purposes and the job done even through one such as us. This, rather this tasteful book, has been so encouraging to me because me, you, we will disqualify ourselves prematurely from being used mightily of God because we'll take a look at ourselves just as Gideon did. We will come up short. It's not a pretty picture. You know what you're made of, for crying out loud. And we'll say, oh, God, greatness is not my calling. That's somebody else, someone who's great. There's no one who's great. Everyone is just like you born in sin, proving it in his or her daily life, struggling in, in trusting an unseen God who increasingly calls us to cut down false idols in our life and be devoted to him and him alone. That's all he has to work with. And so we cry out to him, why, God, why, why, why? And we blame our plight on almighty God in so many words. And we require for Uh, God to manifest himself and assure us of things by putting out a fleece and stuff like that when he's given us 66 books of inspired scripture illuminated by the very presence of his spirit in our lives. And I realized, oh my goodness, we're just like Gideon. But we can be a valiant warrior for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God doing a great work in our life. And uh, it has occurred to me, he will only entrust a great work uh, to those people who are less prone to take credit for it. And when you're brought to the end of yourself and you see your afflictions and your maladies and your flaws and your limitations, that helps you to be less inclined to take credit for the good and great things God intends to do through us. So the very weak things that are disqualifiers in our own mind that's exactly the prerequisite for being used mightily of God we got to be a guy like Gideon who's hiding out in a wine press because we're afraid that's the guy God could use because you would think Gideon would be less prone to take credit for it and yet if ever we get to chapter 8 we'll see it didn't work learn from Gideon you and I folks the very neth. Next breath we take. The inhalation is provided by Almighty God. I did a little exercise the other day. I was just thinking I was riding in the car. Oh, God, what do I have that I have not received? (laughs) Nothing. What do I have that I have earned, merited, (laughs) deserved? Think about it. Zippo. But when I looked, all that God has supplied me with and provided me with, we have to worship Almighty God. That's the goal. Not one another, not a pastor, no matter how marvelous a pastor may be. We worship Almighty God, a great God, who has done great things through human vessels like you and I, just flesh and blood, flawed human beings just like Gideon. I want to be a valiant warrior, <laughs> but I want God to entrust it to me by so working in my life, by reducing me so that I would be less prone to take confidence for it. Oh, God, do a great work for your glory, even through one such as me. Are you willing to pray then? Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven. There's not a person in this room who doesn't desire to serve a good purpose of eternal significance. And it's sad that many of us here have disqualified us from Trusting you for big things because we feel so small. That's it. We must decrease so that you might increase. It's the opposite of what we've been taught in the world. We don't build ourselves up. We don't cultivate our self-image, our self-esteem, our self-confidence. Oh, no. We cultivate our sheer and utter dependence on you, even for the next breath we take. Oh, God, we don't know how much time we have here. We have no idea. But would you bless us by using us, even us, to do great and mighty things for your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.